I'm Cameron Crookston. I'm Patrick Murray. And this is Video Queens. Queens. The podcast where two queens take a look back at the queer movies that made them. And this week we're going to be watching Better Better Than Than Chocolate. Chocolate. This was the best movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I don't believe you. I genuinely okay. really liked this movie. I, I had a lot of different thoughts about this movie. I mm-hmm. also felt like I just watched three movies and I had very different opinions on the three different movies. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to unpack that bold statement. Thank you. Um, because I, I mean, I do have to acknowledge that we have set the bar for cinema so low. Yeah. That this... Like, I, the number of times I wrote, like, oh my god, plot advancement. <laughs> <laughs> like, when I truly... Okay, so we'll give a little summary we'll a little of summary. the film. Um, I would say this is... Uh, can you do it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Picture it, Vancouver, 1999. Um, I lived in Vancouver, and I'm going to be insufferable about this for this, and I'm going to talk geography. Oh my god, when I tell you that as I was watching this movie, I was like, "Did is Cameron from Vancouver? Or I swear his, like, his family's in Toronto, and then I'm like, and then I just was trying to imagine, like, do you just seem like someone who's from Vancouver? Who's I always like, that lie. The mountains! Like, <laughs> just miss the mountains. Um, so I, lived, I guess, yes. I lived in Vancouver from 2002 to 2007, and I based my whole identity around it. I was going to say, I found a personality um, in that. So. Anyway, so, okay. Maggie is a 19-year-old queer woman. She works at a video store. Um, with a bunch of other queer women, she meets this kind of, like, sexy, just-in-town-for-an-indefined-amount-of-time-because-I-have-a-van person named Kim. They fall in love. They sublet an apartment that's full of sex toys. And then Maggie's mom decides that she is going to just show up and live with her indefinitely because she's going through a divorce. She brings the teenage brother. Maggie's not out to her mom. So it's kind of the story of this, like, romance between Maggie and Kim. The story of Maggie eventually coming out to her uh, very uptight um, Monica Geller-esque mother. Um, It's also the story of uh, the bookstore doing battle with the customs agent. Yes. And just for fun, if that seemed thin, um, there is uh, a trans character, Judy, who becomes fairly central to the mom's narrative because they become gal pals. Um, so right. that's kind of it's a it's a coming out lesbian rom com uh, set against the backdrop of uh, bookstore drama. Okay, so I do want to pick up on my my first what the fuck note. Okay. Um, so Maggie's so like one one thing that was a little jarring is that so I love the mom even though the mom is a lot the mom's name is Lila I'm gonna give her agency. So okay. Lila is just very like. She's she's a little prissy. She's a little high strung. Yeah, clutch. She has pearls, and they're there. She's very um uh, Joan. Uh, no, <laughs> Crawford. No, Collins. Well, not Collins. Exactly where my mind went. Allen. Joan Allen in Pleasantville. Yes. Yeah. She's giving you archetypal suburban mom who is scandalized by literally everything. Yeah. Um, and just needs a good vibe. She. To, sh- yeah. Yeah. But she's also 
the best actress by a fair like she's like the only kind of like professional actress in this movie and she is chewing all the scenery so i did love every scene she was in but the scene where maggie calls her so like she calls Maggie because Maggie dropped out of school without telling her and the mail came and she's like, well, it was addressed to you. So I, of course I opened it. And I was like, oh my God, I live for this bitch. <laughs> um, it's a federal crime. <laughs> and then, so the mom is like, how's your life? Maggie is living in a couch in the bookstore and lies and said, I just got an apartment. It's really big. What the mom hears is, oh, that must mean you have a three bedroom and I'm going to come live with you indefinitely with your 17 year old with your brother, brother yeah because boundaries who is she now maggie has to find an apartment she is having to like be in the closet around her mom and she's just found love barely in this, just found love <laughs> in this hopeless place she's um, also doing the absolute least to present as closeted to her mom yeah um uh but she's doing a little um they do have sex in they're sleeping on the couch. There are no doors to the room they're in. And they're having very loud sex on the couch. I mean, power to them. There are also three sex scenes in the first 20 minutes of this movie. Good for them. Yes. Yeah. Um, also, she, like, clearly doesn't put away, like, the books around the house because her brother at one point is doing, like, push-ups with, <laughs> uh, I'm, what is it, like, I'm a lesbian, I'm not a sexist? She's, he's, he's bench-pressing five queer feminist textbooks which not to be obnoxious but that is not very heavy but i was like this is not my hill to die on it's such a great shot of the because you see a very clear shot of the titles just being lifted up as yes. sweats beneath them yeah it's very artistic so yeah that's like the shape of things generally speaking yes so you loved this movie i did and you and so you i'm glad um i will say so like i saw this movie probably in the 90s I came out in 99, and so, like, I think I, like, liked this movie, but didn't have a lot of context for it, and I had the fuzziest recollection of it. Yeah. Um, this was your first time. My, this was my first time. Generally, mm -hmm. the acting was so much better than anything else we've watched. Okay. <laughs> um, That's just undeniable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed Maggie the least. But, like, she also didn't really have to do much heavy lifting. She was just kind of there. I guess she was the lead. But, <laughs> but um, I mean, I think my, my the thing that I liked least about this movie, I will say, is that, like, I found the main characters by far the least interesting. They had, they were pretty flat. Right. Um, they didn't have much of a personality. They're also, like, and, like, I kind of like this, especially for a relatively early indie game movie, because they had so few conflicts. And there's even a point, this was like one of my plot notes, where so like, so like, yes, they, they've met for five minutes before um, the mom shows up. And they're kind of like in this very cute honeymoon phase. They're very sweet. They're having sex constantly in every environment. They have sex in a van as it's getting towed. They have sex in a bathroom in the club. When they walk out of the stall, they get applause because like lesbians are supportive. Um, everyone else take notes. Gay men take notes, applaud people for having sex. Yeah. So, like, yeah, they're just having lots of sex. The only strain in the relationship is that Maggie isn't out. At some point in the movie, Maggie's mom, Lila, I promise I will start naming her because she deserves it. Lila walks in on them having sex and does not handle it well. And one of the things she says to her daughter, who she just found out is gay, is, do you actually think you're in love? Which is a horrible thing 
to say to your child who has just come out to you. And but they... don't you also want to say that to everyone? <laughs> like every... <laughs> no, it's such a horrible, bitter thing to say. <laughs> That's so... Maybe that's where I'm at, but, like, that's what I would want to say to every, every, like, 20-something who's like, this is my boyfriend, I want to be, like, I want to light a cigarette and go, do you actually think you're in love? Listen, Patrick, you're going to be 60 eventually anyway. Don't lean into it this hard. (laughs) It's too early. Okay, so, yes, so she asks, are you actually in love? And I give my applause as if they have come out of the bathroom. You just, like, putting on your, like, brown lipstick, being like, (laughs) me too. Um... And so, like, and, and I think Maggie, like, Maggie doesn't answer and gets very defensive. And during the fallout of this, um, Kim gets mad at her for not answering, yes, we're in love. And then storms off and leaves town in the van. And then when next we see Maggie, she's being sad at the bookstore going, I guess it's over. To which I say, why? Okay. Um, I didn't know we were going to get there this quickly, <laughs> but I... That was what made me laugh so hard was I was like, Kim just moved away and everyone moved on. (laughs) Everyone carried on with their lives. And I was like, this is too real. Like, you're like, it's I'm out and I'm leaving town. And everyone's like, well, I still have to go to work. (laughs) um, Which again, I guess is kind of nice that like the least came, the least conflict came from like, to queer people falling in love. Yeah. And I also, like, need to, like, clock my own positionality here, incidentally. What does that even mean? I'm going to explain. Okay. Sit down. Positionality? Yeah. Um, like missionary? <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> um, like, how I come at this. And, like, what my... Okay, I'm going to get there. So I have a thing with people adding ality and, like, like emotionality or like comfortability where I'm like, isn't that just, it's just emotion. Comfortability doesn't have ality in it. Right. I'm saying that like there are multiple options where I'm like, it's just comfort. Okay. So is positionality just position or is it a different thing? Um, positionality is like how my identity impacts how I am dealing with this. So like how the fact that I'm a cis white gay guy might impact the way I read this movie. And how I am a 60-year-old divorcee. Yeah. <laughs> Who looks great, by the way. Thank you. You look radiant. <laughs> Thank you. You look the opposite of tired. I used my serve for Botox. <laughs> um, so, I, I, Maggie and Kim are... Yeah, like, there's not a lot of conflict in their relationship. And as characters, they're kind of flat. They're not very dynamic. They don't have a lot of peaks and valleys. They right. just kind of, like, are both very attractive, make better minds at each other, and have lots of sex. If this was a movie about two gay men who did that, I would not care at all. Right. I would just be, like, literally feeling the fantasy because that is such a beautiful escapist moment. And I feel like part of the, like, goal of this movie was just for a a queer screenwriter to be like, I just want to make a queer rom-com where people are happy. I don't want this to be a tragedy. Yeah. And the sex scenes are objectively hot. They're also really queer. Yes. There's a scene, the second time they have sex, um, Kim is a painter. It comes up once in a while. Um, and, and she just kind of like, ab- some of the work she does where she paints on people and then they roll on canvas. So they like, they're painting on each other and it's oh. so playful and they're like, their bodies are very like, it's so not male gazy. their sex scenes. Oh, they're, oh my God. Yeah. I, like, 
it is their sex scenes. These are hot. This yeah. is like, like yeah, they're drawing on each yeah. other. At first, I thought it was like edible. Like I thought it's. I thought like it was ed- chocolate. I thought it was chocolate too. Yeah, better than yeah. But then there was yellow, and I was like, did we have food coloring? And then I'm yeah, like, yeah. no, it's just mustard. Sugar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> chocolate and mustard. Try it. They should have called it better than mustard. <laughs> um, it's just mayonnaise. Yeah. Um, so they're painting on each other. Yeah, I found that really sexy. Their bodies are gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, like, again, like, <laughs> I guess I'm a boob guy. Um, <laughs> That's the voice of a boob guy. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, yeah, they're, they have multiple sex scenes that I found incredibly hot. Yeah. So I guess maybe that's why I didn't really care that, like, otherwise I didn't need them in scenes. <laughs> I think the only... Okay. Yeah, I think definitely there is... There is a value to just having a, like, very romantic, sexually positive lesbian aesthetic drive a movie. Right. I think the reason... And I also want to, like, tap it, like, that is something that queer critics are still saying, or until recently was a big part of the conversation, that all gay movies are about tragedy. Um, right. And so I think in 1999, this is super ahead of its time. And like, yeah, so I don't want to like right. shit on it. I don't want to like disrespect the core of this movie. Well, but that's why we're here you are. No, <laughs> well, no, I'm I, kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, that's why we're here. Yes. Um, uh, but I, I think that the contrast between the two other plot lines that I found way more interesting and would occasionally, yes. when when the main characters would come back on the screen, I would have a moment of like, oh, right, this is your movie. hundred percent. Yeah. I almost would have been happier too if they hadn't had the ham-fisted all is lost moment where they like fake break up for a hot second because it felt very forced. And it's like, if your thing is just to be a positive sexual role model... Maybe we, like, break the rules and you guys don't have to do the word breakup. And the other plots yeah. have the all is awesome moments. Yes. Um, you're right. It yeah. felt forced. It felt like the moment wasn't big enough to warrant her, like, leaving. Yeah. Like, it's not like her girlfriend, like, completely denied her existence and, yeah. like, did something really objectively awful that you're like, yeah, I can understand being like, there's no turning back. Yeah. It was like such a microaggression of like, her mom was like, are you still in love? And she didn't say, no, yeah. I hate this. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like this person. She means nothing to me. What's her name? Yeah. Yeah. This trash. Then like, <laughs> like that she just instead fights with her mom about like their own relationship. I will say there was something that happened in this movie um, a few times that I really liked and it was really sad, which was, um, it was just kind of the way people dealt with homophobia Mm. um, in a very like, maybe where now uh, you have this air of like, that's unacceptable. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. There was kind of this like, like that's just the way it is what can we do about it like there's a scene near the very beginning where kim and maggie go to uh tony's coffee shop tony and tony like has a coffee shop right next to the queer bookstore Mm -hmm. seemingly building his business off the uh rainbow dollars Mm -hmm. um of the lesbian literary community who have deep pockets yeah, and also prior to this, we see him getting his portrait painted by 
Kim. So we're, he's coded as an ally. <sighs> yes, he's getting his... Yes, he's getting his portrait painted by Kim. Um, waits till it's done to say, great, I'm going to put this in my business. And she's like, that's $20. And he's like, how about just free coffee and leaves? Yeah. Um, so then to get her payment for her painting, um, but mainly to go on a date with, uh, Kim or Maggie, fuck, whatever. Maggie. Mim. Mim. Like, <laughs> the cu- their couple name is Mim Kaggy. Um, <laughs> um, they go on a date, their first date to this coffee shop and they're there and they go to kiss and Tony's like, whoa, 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 not here. Like, you can't do that. Like, families come in here. Yeah. And in some ways, I really liked Tony's performance because it wasn't like, it wasn't this heavy handed, like, my only characteristic is homophobia. Like, yeah. That's entirely who I am. It was like, uh, you can't... Like, it was, again, this, like, that more microaggression-y mm-hmm. stuff. Um, where it, it was very much like, a, I'm personally okay with it, but yes. this is going to hurt my business. And obviously families come in here, so you obviously can't be... Yeah, so you, you... Exactly. I'm cool with it, but could you just not... Yeah. You know, be who you are. And the way they respond to it isn't like, I just painted you for free, you stupid fuck. You're next to this... You know, again, yeah. it's not hostile. They're like... Well, I think Maggie makes a joke. Yeah, it was just that thing of, like, that sad experience of, like, I feel like as a queer person, of, like, I'm gonna pick my battles. Yeah. Of, like, something has happened, maybe I don't hate this person, or I encounter them a lot, I'm just gonna kind of make a joke Mm -hmm. and, like, leave. Yeah. Yeah. Which was just a bummer to see. Yeah, I mean, there is also a bit of a running, not a gag, but there's like a running thing where a couple of times there are like... A gaggy and Kim? <laughs> We're cutting that out. Um, <laughs> um, so the way Kim and Maggie meet is that Maggie has done her first performance of some kind at a, a bar. She's like lip synced, um, dressed as an angel. It's very sexy. And she's okay. coming... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was like... Is this a costume contest on Halloween? There was like there were like six people on stage in different costumes. You're watching this through a very 2021 drag race lens. The aesthetics <laughs> were different in '99. A costume wasn't outfits. Okay. Anyway, my point yeah, is, sorry. Kim's coming out dressed like an angel, and she's getting her. There's like these three guys in the alley behind the bar that start following her yes. and like calling her a dyke, and and then Kim in her, I don't know if we've mentioned this, but she has a van, Kim, like, kind of, like, honks and, like, aggressively vans at them, and they, like, run off. (laughs) And this happens a few times where, like, these, like, whatever they do in the club, like, shitty homophobic guys hang out in this, or, like, always walking down this alley, and, like, they don't laugh it off, but it's not, like, they just kind of, like, avoid them and avoid it, and it's just so, like, well, this is part of being queer, is that, like, yeah, we get harassed and we get kicked out of places. And being Um, a woman, like, and, um... Which, again, obviously, it's not an experience I can speak to, but from having female friends. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just that thing of, like, I just want to get home. Like, 100%, yeah. Like, the, that's the... It's like, I'm not looking to have this fight right here yeah, yeah. or right now. I just want to get home. Yeah. Um, and that sucks. Yeah, and I mean, too, I don't know how... This is, like... this. Okay, this geography is germane. Um this movie isn't, like, very explicit about uh, the geography of Vancouver, but, like, in the 90s, 
the gay village and the lesbian village um, were not in the same parts of town. Oh, and the, so like gay bars were in the village in the West End, and so you were. I mean, like there was violence, and you you know things could be sketchy at night. But when you left a gay bar, you were still walking through the village. Whereas gay bars for women were in the East End and didn't, which is like generally a rougher neighborhood. Like it's close to like the um, like East Hastings, um, and you you are walking through a neighborhood that has less of a community cohesion. So I think definitely for queer women, especially in this city at this point in history, mm-hmm. there is a lot less safety. Okay. That's very interesting. I mean, I think that's also generally an issue because like generally in most villages I know about, there are less spaces for queer women. Mm-hmm. So a lot of queer events tend to happen at like a one-off. So you're very often in a neighborhood that is right. not necessarily your neighborhood. Um, right. So there's an added thing of like, not only is it a lot more dangerous to be a woman at night alone, but also you don't necessarily have this community bubble. T. So I thought, okay, so then when they had the bookstore thing, the whole, the whole bookstore arc, mm-hmm. um, can I tell you this is based on a real story? This one part of the movie is a real so this happens not infrequently. This happened to a few Canadian bookstores, but there was a very specific event. Um, Little Sisters is the bookstore in Vancouver, and they had this issue in the 90s where all of their shipments were seized by customs for being obscene. Okay. So this is, like, very much a little, like, documentary based on a true story moment. True crime. It's <laughs> a true crime story that I'm chocolate. And I'm in. Yeah. Um, okay, so... I feel like this was, first of all, this was Cam's History Corner, which I love. It was, yeah. Um, uh, so, okay, so my, like, issue with the subplot about the very real, actually interesting, um, bookstore thing is that it's so, so underdeveloped. There are only three scenes that deal with it. It feels like such a higher stakes than the rest of the things going on in this <laughs> movie that it feels weird that it just, like, so there's one character. Okay, first of all, hard pause. Um, the woman who owns and runs the bookstore, Frances, is played by Canadian playwright and novelist Amory MacDonald. Okay. Um, she wrote Goodnight Desmond. In her first performance? She's a theatrical actor. Okay. Um, she wrote Goodnight Desdemona, Good Morning Juliet. Okay. You went to theater school in the U.S., so this might mean nothing to you. Right. Um, and she also wrote a novel, it's like the saddest, saddest novel of all time called Fall on Your Knees. So she's amazing, she's a lesbian icon, that's really cool. But anyway, basically every 30 minutes in this movie, it'll cut to a scene in the bookstore, Amory McDonald is like death gripping a phone, screaming, CUSTOMS! And that's kind of all we get. So we get one scene where she tells us the books have been held by customs. Yes. We get another scene where they go to the customs office, they make zero headway. It, it is upsetting, it's frustrating, but the customs office basically says, like, we are holding these, these are obscene. Amory McDonald's like, no, no, no. The Supreme Court has said, this is okay, you can't do this. And she's like, and the, the guy's like, well, we're customs, and we don't. We can do whatever we want. Um, mm-hmm. And then later on, we get, uh, we get like a moment where like, we're told the customs people are coming to seize the books. And they're going to, like, put us out of business. And this lines up when Maggie is just broken up with, with Kim. So she does a protest piece where she stands naked in the window and writes obscene across her breasts. It's very powerful artistically. But in an obscene lesbian. Obscene lesbian. And yes. then on her, uh, her vahine mm-hmm. is pervert. 
seen lesbian pervert. Which is important. Which is all important and lovely, but the thing is, like, that gets so much less screen time than every other plot in this movie. Those are the only three scenes. We also don't get a resolution. We do not get a resolution. This movie... Okay, so, like, as the as the almost raid on the bookstore is happening, skinheads come, they throw fire through the window, Tony's installing a stove, so the whole building blows up. <laughs> and no one is injured. Tony has black soot, like Tony a cartoon character. Soot. Judy walks out looking not even an ounce yeah. disheveled. Like... Maggie was standing by an open window, by a glass window, naked. It blew up. She has not a scratch on her. At the end of this movie, we get a, a like little like vignettes that tell us how everyone has ended up. What and we get every couple how they have like progressed, what they're up to, what they're doing. What we don't get is what happened with customs. Yes. Did they rebuild the bookstore? Did they have insurance? Was the homophobic insurance agent a problem? Like we get no. So like. A, yes. a movie about a lesbian bookstore that is being embroiled in a battle of customs is so interesting. They did not give us that. We get just like the lightest dusting of this political, what I'm calling a C plot. Okay. It was, how dare you? It was the B plot. <laughs> and. Judy was the B plot. But okay. Yeah. Um, and I made a case for that in my mind um, as existing in the same world as Tony's homophobic coffee shop that like the thing is I'm almost glad that Mim's like like window like Christmas window store lesbian pervert performance piece didn't like save the bookstore and and cure homophobia like it was like totally. oh the sad thing is that like first of all the mim love story or whomever like ending up with whomever else doesn't actually fix this yep. so it's like yeah francis is probably still fucked mm-hmm. like this the this customs thing is not going to be fixed overnight. And maybe I'm kind of like giving this a bit too much credit, mm-hmm. but I kind of like that that didn't get resolved. So I, I like that it didn't get a bow wrapped around it. Cause I'm, I'm yeah. aware like it would have been very annoying if one performance art piece had fixed homophobia. Yeah. I would, I just wanted more screen time for this plot yes. because I thought it was so interesting. And the fact that it was a true story Mm. Um, what I can say on the flip side of that, in the same way that I threw this, if I can throw this bone to boy culture, I can definitely give it to Butters and Chocolate, is right. maybe it is enough that young people are coming to watch this, like, lovely, sexy rom-com, and you are then kind of, like, tricked into, like, dealing with these, like, larger political issues. Because maybe it's enough to know that, like, first of all, support your support your local bookstore, read books, and to be aware that this shit does happen to queer business owners, especially queer business owners who are kind of dealing with, like, arts and literature. And maybe you go home right. and you Google it. it. It gets enough we mention it a few times so that you, it doesn't have to be the whole movie, but you know it's out there. It's, that, I will say, is a missed opportunity that I think that, w- again, like, they literally did more title cards than I've, like, ever seen in a movie. Like, they were like, anyone who's in this movie, we're going to tell you how they lived the rest of their life and died. I think that would be an opportunity. That would have been a great ending. Yeah. Of, like, first of all, maybe instead of the title cards, and, and again, you had so many, why not add another one? Of just, like, this was a real thing that happened. Yeah. Like, just a little thing about the real thing that happened. Yeah. Ooh. That would have 
taken me there. Because mm. I was liking it enough that I would have, I would have been like, am I going to cry? And then I wouldn't have, but yeah. then I would have like made myself cry thinking of something else. <laughs> Is there a window? <laughs> yeah. Like if you're interested in reading out, so again, Little Sisters Bookstore in Vancouver did go through this in for real in the 90s and that's what this is based on there was other another big issue in the early 80s late 70s with um the body politic which was like the first queer right publication in canada is very um like kind of a trailblazer problematic racially problematic sex wise in terms of sexism um so like grain of salt but they also had an issue where all their books were held up uh by customs for being obscene and in the 70s they had even less uh, protection and support so they did a lot of kind of in terms of like the legal bat- battles they did that set a lot of precedent for gay rights so right worth a google should that be a, why don't we take a break and when we come back we will pop up to the problematic the problems in the other yes <laughs> Yes, absolutely. The Be problems careful. in the attic? It's very dusty up here, so, you know, <laughs> if you want to smock, I have several. <laughs> um, okay, so some problems in the attic. Yeah, I have, I have two. Okay, okay. I think I have three. Oh my god, it's not a contest. But if it was... <laughs> it would be golf and I'd be winning. Um, <laughs> um, <sighs> go first. <laughs> um... Uh, God, that was good. Um, okay, so this is, okay, so I did write down at a certain point, I was like, okay, minus 10 points, we're 30 minutes in, and so far everyone is white. Mm -hmm. Now, I did look up, and, um, I did look this up, and actually, I stand corrected, Kim is biracial. Oh! Kim is biracial, um, uh, uh, Jamaican and white. Okay. So... Um, so there's that. That okay. being said, everyone else is white. Yeah. So that was definitely uh, a problem in my attic. My attic has a very similar box to yours. Um, yeah, like the fact that this is like, this is, the cast is not small. There's a lot of characters running around, which feels very like 90s and also 2000s and also 2010s. Yeah, it's not great. And it does kind of imply that like, a gay movie is a movie with all white people. If you want to have a person in color, that's like a different subsection, which is like horribly problematic. Right. Uh, and is a form of erasure. So like, yeah, really we would sucks. only allow someone who like pass it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, again, like obviously Kim is very light skinned. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, blonde. And, and it's never acknowledged, which yeah. again, like it's not like it always has to be. Yeah. Um, it's not Kim or the actress who plays Kim's job to be a token, but I think from, yeah, like the casting and creative team to have a, what's an ensemble piece of about eight characters who all get a decent amount of screen time to have no uh, characters of color other than uh, Kim who arguably passes for white. Yeah. It's not great, guys. Not great. Yeah. Um, I would say, uh, okay, my, uh, my other problem in the attic mm-hmm. Um, is, uh, because I also had to look this up mm-hmm. just to confirm, um, 
<laughs> I guess one of my problems in the attic was just the <laughs> the general uh, lack of articulation around the name Judy because at first I thought I wrote down Ginny, then I wrote down Jerry, then I wrote down Jury, and then I got to Judy. <laughs> I did not have this problem. I heard Judy right away. No, it was it was very clearly Ginny, Jerry, Jury, <laughs> Judy. Um, the Judy's out on this one. So <laughs> only Judy can judge me. So, Judy is played by a straight cis actor. Yeah. Um, again, obviously, that is something that we are still talking about. Yeah. Like, the, um, uh, the Jared Leto's of it all. Um, so, this is not, again, like, existing when it did. This is not, um, it's still a problem in the attic. Mm -hmm. I understand that that was a different time. Um, for me, there was a weird moment. It was kind of the moment that I was like, I have a feeling that this is a, this is a cis actor mm -hmm. where Judy got really serious about something and dropped the voice, yeah. dropped, um, dropped her voice into like, it was almost kind of that like Tatiana same parts thing of like the same parts. And it's a moment where, where Judy's very angry and she's like, and I'm, and she does like a very like breathy kind of uh, like high register voice. And there's a moment where she's, and I'm pissed. Yeah. And I was like, yo. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it didn't feel, because again, it wasn't, I mean, I guess luckily it, I don't think it was played as a joke. It definitely wasn't. It just didn't feel super, um, accurate. And again, we're two cis white guys. We're yes, not the of authority course. on this. But yeah, I think just like from what I know, it yeah, was a red flag. Overall, I did enjoy the performance. Yeah. So like I, I had the same thing and I actually wrote down this feels very Jared Leto because um because it is a cis actor playing a trans woman. Um and like you're right, in nineteen ninety nine there is a certain um it's progressive to have a fairly well rounded trans character who right. is like like she gets an arc. Yeah. She goes through a lot. Um, she is portrayed as being both sympathetic and likable. Yeah. Um, and it, this, this is a point in history where like, so like this is, I think right before, uh, Boys Don't Cry came out and then Trans American is even a few years later. Mm -hmm. Trans America? Trans America. Trans America. Yeah. Um, uh, so like this is a little point in history where that's like being like excused. I mean, yeah. I, I like, I have like mixed feelings. I may have said this before in an earlier episode. Where, like, whenever someone's like, well, that hasn't aged well, or it was a different time, it's like, that's kind of like saying cigarettes weren't bad for you then. It's like, this was actually never okay. Right. Um, but just in the way that politics and progress play out is that we, like, we were calling this out then. Right. Um, still not great. And to, like, sort of rewatch this in a movie now, um, that is something that might be a hurdle to someone, and it might be a reason not to watch this movie. Um, I also did actually kind of like the performance beyond that. Yeah. Um, and I liked a lot. Like, so when I say that this was three movies, my favorite movie was a gal pal comedy between recently divorced up uptight Lila and Judy. <laughs> like, that was my, the, all my favorite scenes. They were Pronounced also, jury, but, um. Jury duty? <laughs> yeah, you're excused. <laughs> That's the name of the movie. Jury duty, but the character's name is Judy, so it makes <laughs> sense. Honey bun. Um, yeah, like, it was, they were the strongest actors in this movie. It's really interesting. And kind of, like, what happens 
if we can get past the fact that Judy is played by a, uh, a cis male actor, um, I think what they do with the character is, uh, like, interesting and good and smart. Um, so part of it is just that, yeah, like, what ends up getting a lot of screen time, and I think is way more interesting, is that Judy pops by to visit Maggie, and she's not home, and she ends up having tea with her mom. And they are both, like, I mean, like, I get that Judy is supposed to be, like, probably in her mid-30s, Lila's probably in her, like, late 40s, so they're, like, they're close, they're the two grown-ups. Um, Judy has a bit of, like, a conservative vibe, like, she's not super vivacious for, like, a, for, like, the other queer characters she orbits. Yeah, um, I'm kind of had that they were both, they were, there was an element of, like, repressed women of a certain age. Exactly, yeah. So there is this, like, very awesome, like, like, buddy sisterhood vibe that I think could have been the whole movie. Yes. Um, and I think it's way more interesting. Um, and it does kind of facilitate, um, a slightly underdeveloped thing where Lila is kind of, like, getting her groove back. Um, there is a really, so, like, Lila decides early in the movie that, like, I'm never gonna have sex again because I'm, like, over the hill, I'm just gonna eat chocolate. Yes. Better than chocolate. They said chocolate a few too many times in this movie, actually. But the, you know what they didn't say is better than chocolate? No. Which, again, the other two movies could not resist actually looking down the barrel of the camera and essentially being like, and that's why it's boy culture. <laughs> or like, and we really are not another gay movie. So, so neither of those things ever happened, but I know <laughs> what you mean. They were more heavy-handed. Yes. Yeah. So... I, I honestly, like, again, like, I felt like I, I was, I was just waiting to accept the moment that she was like, oh, and I guess it is better than chocolate. Um, I mean, it did that when me, they didn't, it was very satisfying. It drove me crazy waiting for that song to play, and that, that song plays in, like, the second last scene. Okay, so I didn't know. For those of you under the age of 33. No, I know the song. Okay. Um, I didn't know the song was called Better Than Chocolate. It's actually called Better Than Ice Cream. Oh, yeah. Okay, well then it's a good thing I didn't know that it was called Better Than Chocolate because it isn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just yeah. knew that song was called like, na 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 Anyway, this movie is named after a line in the song, Better Than Ice Cream, Better Than Chocolate. And I went insane waiting for them to play it. They play it in the last five minutes of the movie and I like fully had an orgasm just from being relaxed. Um, but I digress. The mom eats chocolate sometimes. Okay, so, I regress. Was the song written for the movie? No. That's annoying. The movie was named after the song. Trying okay. to capitalize on her little affair. So they were like, let's name, let's name the movie after the song, but it's not the name of the song, but it's a better lyric in the song, because if the movie was called Better Than Ice Cream... I'm good. Yeah, I mean, I think it would have been harder for them to just shoehorn in metaphors about ice cream and have them constantly just eating, like, <laughs> ice cream cones every five minutes being like... Okay, first of all, it's a tub of ice cream with a spoon, and it is not hard to be doing any activity while eating it. That's a good point. Um, okay, so, better than cho- Okay, so, great. Okay, yeah, I don't think I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no cherry on that. Okay. There's this, I can't remember why I'm telling the story, but I just, I'm going to describe this scene where, um, the mom is, like, popping bonbons like it's her job, and she is, um, she goes to, like, sit down on the bed she's staying in, in Maggie's apartment, and she looks under it for some reason, and Maggie is subletting this from a woman who runs, um, uh, like, self-pleasure workshops, and so, like, the whole place is just, like, covered in dildos. There's dildos on every surface. There were so many dildos, for some reason, yeah. in plants. 
they there is like a moment where Maggie and um Kim are trying to de-dildo the apartment when the mom shows up, <laughs> and they don't get them all by a long shot. There's still dildos everywhere. But anyway, because yeah. it's like in the first three seconds, the brother is holding a dildo, being like, burp, burp. yeah, <laughs> like, burp, burp. yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the mom is like eating chocolate, and she has a perfect circular like pot of gold chocolate in her mouth, not quite in the mouth. It looks exactly like a ball gag, and she opens up this box of what are revealed to be dildos and sex toys and vibrators. Does not chew the chocolate. It is in there, and she like takes out one. And there's, it starts kind of like playing with, or like experimenting with the dildos with this like chocolate ball gag in her mouth, then takes it out, does not chew it, doesn't like, could just swallow it easily, no, takes out the uneaten chocolate with a bite mark in it, puts it by the bedside table, and starts playing with the dildo, or the vibrator, because the vibrator is better than chocolate. Yes. It's a really cute scene because she's wearing these like fluffy um, slippers and pleasuring herself with a like oscillating like a rabbit yeah an oscillating vibrator and and like kind of giggling um i loved the giggle the, it was really a fun scene yes and it, it wasn't a quick cutaway like we spent a lot of time with her facial features that yeah it was the laughter she came and then she laughed mm-hmm. and it wasn't she wasn't laughing at herself she was yeah. just laughing joyously and she, freely she wasn't doing gross like she wasn't doing porn noises for a guy she was like it was about her feeling pleasure yes um, and so I think... And the only comedy was that then the batteries died. And I was like, again, I didn't know if she was going to have to go on a whole journey. To, but then it was like, she's literally got a box of sex toys. Like, there's so many batteries. She, she solved her really quickly. She harvested <laughs> another vibrator for her favorite vibrator. <laughs> and she like, yes. and she's so fucking focused. She's like, well, she's like, I gotta do, I gotta do. And she's so, she gets it done so fast. Yes. Um, so i think the reason i bring this up is that like there is a fairly interesting narrative with lila where this is actually about her learning who she is outside of relationship because initially we meet her and she's like my husband left me i'm never gonna have sex again and i basically have no identity now because my whole thing was about being married so the fact that she discovers that she can pleasure herself yeah that she can eat chocolate um and that she develops this relationship with judy where they do kind of like lean on each other like she gets her first job she sells houses she sells judy a house they're painting it together yeah um and it is kind of a cool moment where you get that lila gets a sense of who she is because she can have a relationship with a woman um she learns she can express rage with judy where they like throw paint at the wall yeah um they get drunk together um lila actually teaches judy how she's gonna go for it with francis uh so i i really liked that that was actually um so that although there was a lot of uh like political trans visibility content around judy she wasn't 100 defined by that part of her narrative actually was about having this like gap how relationship with this yes woman. yes um so there are two moments i want to talk about um there's also a great moment so like judy is um identifies as a lesbian also yeah and uh she does get trans verbally and physically bashed a lot in this movie but in the one of the last scenes when the guys that threw a flare through the bookstore window are leaving <gasps> they, i they yell at Judy and they call her a fucking dyke. And Judy, with a smile on her face, says, thank you. Thank you. Because it is a slur that affirms her gender. Yes, I know. I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was really cute. Um, so Judy uh, works full-time as a cabaret singer. And Judy gives a performance called... I'm not a drag queen. I'm not a fucking drag queen. I'm not a fucking drag queen. And I need to just, like unpack the significance of this moment so like 
This is always going to be an interesting song, I think. But in the context of the 1990s, this is really fucking important because this is a time in which the conflation between drag and trans identities is kind of reaching a fever pitch. Right. Um, I mean, like, we're in a cultural moment now where there's been a lot more press around, yes, of course, trans people can do drag. Yes. And yes, of course, trans people can do drag. Of course. Um, because, like... Again, even, um, obviously, like, in the, uh, <laughs> when did Drag Race come out? 2009. Okay. Okay, so, like, from two, even in 2009. Yeah. Um, even into the 2010s. Yeah. There were seasons of Drag Race and m- moments in Drag Race and the conversation around it dedicated to, um, to address, addressing that not, um, that drag did not mean trans. Yeah. Like they're like where they're saying that um, almost to educate their audience. And yeah. now we're saying again, it is as all things are yeah. more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah. And, or it's like, yeah, drag does not mean trans. Mm-hmm. You can be trans and do drag. You can do drag and not, or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so yeah. So she, per- and I love that she's also performing mm-hmm. too, because there's like, the thing of like, well, drag is the performance of gender. Yeah. Um, she's not performing her gender. She's not performing she's her a gender. Woman who's performing? Who's a performer? Um, and so I think this is so important in '99 because one of the I think the reasons that the current debate has kind of landed the way it what has is that like so okay like the history of trans people performing in drag is long and storied. I guess yeah. I can and have talked about it for hours. Yeah. <laughs> But let's just say that, like, historically, there's a lot of overlap there. And the yeah. clean lines that we experience in the 2000s are, are not, don't go back that far. Yeah. Um, in the 90s, there is a moment um, in which gay, which pop culture becomes really interested in gay uh, culture. Right. We get, like, we get Will and Grace, we get the Birdcage, we get Paris is Burning, we get all of these things in which straight people are interested in consuming queer culture in very specific ways that yeah. are easy to digest. And a big part of that is the visibility of drag queens as, like, a fun thing for straight people to watch. Yeah. Because of that large... And we get and what we don't get is any visibility of trans identity. So because drag becomes so, so popular in the zeitgeist, those two things get conflated. And a lot of uh, trans people get mistaken for drag queens. And that's very invalidating because what that potentially says to a trans person is your identity is a costume it's a character you're yes, playing yeah. the stakes are low you can just take it off you're just take it off you're yeah. just playing make-believe it's not real yeah on the flip side of that there is so like transphobia and stigma around transness is so ingrained that a lot of drag queens whether they're cis or maybe more fluid want to distance themselves from transness so they double down that binary and they say whoa 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 i am not trans Trans people have a mental illness. This is just a job. I am only a drag queen. I am a cis guy, and I'm just playing a character. That was a moment. That was like a real. That that was a very consistent soundbite in the '80s, '90s, and even early 2000s, where a lot of drag queens really distanced themselves and used the phrase "mental illness." Yeah. Oh God. Um. The idea that like being yeah the idea that being trans was a mental illness. I, like, I, again, I obviously, I know that that was something 
it's again it's just like one of those things that's even more upsetting when you're like from within the community when it's a gay guy doing yeah it. yeah to be exactly yeah to use that phrase um i mean there's a long history amongst <laughs> like what gay had been declassified as a mental illness what like five, five minutes, minutes. Yeah. yeah like um, you're like okay cool nice I mean, like, honestly, that's such a big part of the history where it's, like, all of a sudden gay people are not pathologized and they throw trans people under the bus. Yeah. And there's a big history of being, like, um, of kind of comparison, comparison, of comparing, being, like, I'm not crazy, they're crazy. I'm not upsetting, they're upsetting. They're obscene, I'm super normal socks. Comparisonability. Comparisonability. Yeah. Yeah. Please welcome Comparison is burning. <laughs> that's good. You could get that on a term paper. Um, so I think this is a really important moment because Judy is... In this moment of like extreme drag visibility, there's not a lot of representations of trans women, and particularly talking about the difference between being drag and being trans. Mm -hmm. um, and she's not saying trans women can't be drag queens. She's saying I, I personally am not a fucking drag queen. This is not a costume. I'm real sauce. Yes. And so I thought that was such a cool little historical detail from a movie from the '90s. Um, with the trans character. Yes, I really, um, I really, I really liked that song and performance. Um, yeah. Uh, so this movie. Yeah. Would you recommend it to an audience, to a, to a listener? Yes, I would. Yes, I agree. I would recommend this movie to anyone. I think this is a particularly good movie for like a newly out young person. Yeah. Probably female identified, although I saw this as a young gay guy and I liked it. Um, but there is something about the, like, the love story is very, like, it's sexy and it's, like, affirming. And there's just, like, because it's a queer ensemble piece that is pretty ensemble -y, you get such, like, a broad sample, not unlike a box of chocolates, to a <laughs> queer universe. Like, it's if a pretty... all the chocolates were white. <laughs> if all the chocolates were white chocolate. Which yeah. Is not, which is not real chocolate. Um, right. Um, but I digress. Uh, yeah, like, I, I think this is a really, uh, a cute coming out movie and a good movie for someone who's just come out. Yeah. It, it, and again, like when you're, um, when you're newly out and you want to see yourself represented, yeah. um, it's nice to have it be sexy. Well, like, that's like, the thing is you want to... It's a bit of a fantasy. Yes. And yeah. there were good sex scenes. Like, I loved the sex scenes, mm -hmm. and I am not attracted to women sexually. I think it's also really important. So, like, I'm really glad we watched this movie. Um, we haven't talked about this on air, but, like, we are very intentional that we don't only want to review and watch movies about cis gay guys. Right. There's enough movies we could do that, and that's <laughs> a big problem. But, like... Yes. I think it's really, like... If you're someone who's only ever watched your story on screen, like, pick up Better Than Chocolate. Like, I think it's, like, yeah. representation is really important. It will broaden the way you see larger members of your community, of the world. Do yourself a favor. Watch a lesbian rom-com once in a while. Yeah! They're really... It, like, it's good, and I got a lot out of it. Yes. Yeah. If you Because, again, like, if your only impression um, of any type of per you know anyone yeah. how they identify is limited to your personal experience sometimes you don't have a very well-rounded view so sometimes media can help with that of like oh you're literally like following someone's story yeah and you have a protagonist you have villains you have whatever and uh like everything so far <laughs> they are readily available on youtube <laughs> so well thanks for listening 
And remember, you can email us movie suggestions at videoqueenspod at gmail.com or tweet us at videoqueenspod on Twitter. Uh, if you're looking for a way to support the show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps people to find us or just tell your friends. Word of mouth is super helpful. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.